Well, good morning, church. Uh, in case you don't know me, I'm Pastor Rob. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Osterville Baptist, and we are in a series, How to Age Like a Fine Wine. That's right. You never thought you would come to church and talk about wine, but I have to say, in my defense, Jesus talked about it, so I can too. Let me begin with this principle. Causation does not equal, or correlation does not equal causation. Have you heard that before? Are you familiar with that principle? There are a lot of things that strongly correlate with one another. Let me give you an example of this. Ice cream sales and shark attacks. You'll see a chart here on the screen. <laughs> and as you look at this chart, uh, you become quickly aware that there is a strong correlation between ice cream sales and shark attacks. But does that mean the next time that you buy an ice cream over there at Craigville Beach and then jump into the ocean that you're more likely to be Megalodon snack? <laughs> no. Though you might taste a little better after that. <laughs> so let me talk to you about another correlation that perhaps we misunderstand. Age and maturity. You see, the correlation is strong, isn't it? Because most people that you look at and you say, that person is really, really mature, happen to be older. Now, why is that? Well, remember, we talked about this last week. You are in a process. God is fermenting you. He's making grapes become wine. He's doing something in you. That takes time for the process to happen. But here's the thing about the process. Some people don't become a fine wine. Some people become vinegar. And we saw that last week. There are certain steps that people take that create vinegar in their life. So here's the big question. How does someone become mature? Well, my answer to this is actually found in the words of Jesus. I believe that there's a choice that we make, and we pursue this choice over a long period of time. Jesus explains the choice to us in John 12, 24, and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit." Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So here we have this gospel paradox, this gospel paradox that if I really want to live, then I have to actually think about how much I give. Now, I believe that this gospel paradox is at the heart of Solomon's writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some people, when they're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, they kind of look at uh, Solomon as the late Reverend Dontremont used to say, this old curmudgeon who's cynical and jaded in life, and he's just like kind of wagging his finger at everything. How all vanity, everything's vanity, nothing matters in the world, but I've got to tell you, I think they're wrong. I believe that Ecclesiastes is a powerful apologetic where Solomon is saying, listen, I get what makes you guys tick. 
I chased that magic pot of gold on the rainbow, and I didn't get it. You won't either. The four most dangerous words. This time, it's different. There's a second way. There's a better way. And this way leads to what you desire most in life. It brings joy. And so, as we get into Ecclesiastes, we're going to start with this idea that we need to discover the sacredness in everything. Solomon picks up in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 16 and 17. Um, he says, in my search for wisdom and in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discovered that there is ceaseless activity day and night. I realized that no one can discover everything that God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. So let's talk about a mature thought process when it comes to God. That's what Solomon's unpacking here. An immature thought process says, I'm not going to believe unless I can wrap my mind around everything that is God. Why is that immature? Well, because God is so much bigger than you are, and there are plenty of things that we can't wrap our mind fully around, but still must believe. So the mature thought process says, I have enough information. I know enough things about God, therefore I choose to believe. You see the difference between the two? It's a big difference. We're never going to fully wrap our mind around God. Uh, Thomas Merton said this about God. Trying to solve the problem of God is like trying to see your own eyeballs. You know, without a mirror and without water for reflection, have you ever tried to look at your own eyeballs? It would be a pretty awkward process, wouldn't it? You'd look pretty silly. You see, it turns out that if you try to master God, you will probably never see him. He will be elusive. But when you humble yourself, you quiet your soul you start recognizing his handiwork in everything. Solomon gets into this in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. This is that famous, a time for everything passage. For everything, there is a season and a time for everything under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Now just wait a minute here. Are we suggesting that God is involved in all of it? And you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, there are some dark moments in here. Don't you see the dark moments? Weeping, killing, war, 
Is God in all of this stuff? And the answer that the Bible tells us is yes. He's in it all. The picture of God that we're presented from the biblical text is a God of providence, a God who's navigating everything in the world. Here's the definition of providence. Providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for all things in the universe. Now, a world without providence, the idea is that nothing matters. Everything's just random. Uh, When someone you love dies, it just happened randomly. It was a cosmic accident that they came here in the first place, a cosmic accident that they died. But when you insert providence into the picture, now, no, not, you know, nothing matters, but now everything in the world matters, even tragedy, even pain. Everything is sacred. Solomon says that you were wired to yearn for this sacredness. Listen to verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So how do you see the beauty? Let's start with exhibit A. You exist. Let's start there. You know, you don't have to read a Bible verse to get caught up in the sacredness, to discover that the the reality that you exist is so sacred. Even human reasoning, basic human reasoning can get you there. One scientist explains that the odds of you existing are about the same as having a group of two million people rolling a one trillion sided dice all on the same number, and not just one time, but 500 billion times in a row. Now you're saying to me, Rob, I don't understand those numbers. That makes no sense to me. It doesn't compute. Well, let me just break it down a little simpler. Either it is impossibly lucky that you happen to be sitting in your chair right now existing, or there is some kind of design behind it all. And the design that the Bible puts forward for us is a design of a God who is ordaining everything in history for a reason, for a purpose. So let's ask a question. Do you want option A or B? I want option B. Because now everything matters. So here's the thing. If that's all true, then it means that you do not need to Go on a quest for meaning and purpose. Life is inherently purposeful. It inherently has meaning. You know, in this culture today, we have reduced meaning down to a checklist, a bunch of boxes that we want to check along the way, and if we check most of the boxes, well, then I arrive at meaning. Box number one, education check. Box number two, career, check. Box number three, family, check. 
Box number four, climb the ladder in my career, check. Box number five, nest egg, check, got that solved. Box number six, happiness, elusive. So many people have checked the boxes along the way and they did not arrive at meaning. One writer says that when you approach life like this, you are no longer homo sapiens, you have become, you have devolved into homo economicus. I was moved um, as I was reading in preparation for this study about David Brooks, and I told you a little bit about his story last week. He wrote a book called The Second Mountain, and in this book, he chronicles in one chapter his move from atheism to believing in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, it was so interesting as you look at someone's journey of faith, especially if they come out of that background, it's quite a windy road as most people's journey to faith is. It came about that he received a series of realizations along the way as he opened himself up to God. One of the realizations happened in Penn Station in New York. He was walking around, and as he was processing whether or not God exists, he just looked out into a sea of people, and he no longer saw them as a bunch of biochemical machinery. He started seeing souls. Souls on a quest for meaning. Souls feeling anxious about whether or not they matter. Souls moving to and fro, some frantic, some frenetic. Souls, precious souls. Another realization that he came to is that if everything is sacred, if God exists, well, then my life would somehow have to align with that sacredness. So he's taking a walk around American Lake in Aspen, Colorado, and he goes through a mental catalog in his mind of all the things that he would have to give up if God exists. Okay, his words, not mine. My work my reputation, my friendships, my life, my loves, my family, my vices, my bank accounts. You know what he's going through right there? That is a John 12, 25 moment. Unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot produce much fruit in life. Brooks discovered that this call from Jesus, though, was not the elimination of his will. It was the transformation of his will. He said to himself, listen, grace is not about um, desiring lesser things. Grace is about having your will transformed so that you desire better things. And we've all had our desires change along the way. I remember when I was a, I don't know, five or six-year-old kid, my drink of choice was Kool-Aid. It's not that today. Give me a thick, dark roast coffee in the morning 
or a seltzer with lime at dinner. Transformation is metamorphosis. So when you think about the transformation of your will, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're changing location or changing your job or changing who you're married to or changing who you're friends with. It's about changing you and the way that you interface with everything around you. You start seeing sacredness in everything, and so it changes you. Now, if that's true, then Solomon would talk to us about this and things that we interface with normally in life, and he does. For example, one thing that Solomon addresses in Ecclesiastes is work. Listen to what he says about work. It is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. I think people believe that the you know, the way that you fight against something like workaholism that, like we talked about last week, is just to totally unplug from work altogether. So now I'm just going to enjoy life and just give myself to experiences instead of being caught up in the rat race. But the Bible says that you were wired to work. It's in your DNA. It begins right in the foundations of creation. You find meaning in work. I was reminded of this just recently. Now, Katie and I, we have a very energetic son and our youngest son, Isaac. And uh, he's a great kid. That's what we love about you, by the way. You are so vibrant and alive. And we were having a conversation, weren't we? And we were saying, like, how do we help this very energetic, vibrant human being get his energy out through the day? So what do we do? We get online and we start looking at these weird yard contraptions that maybe we could put outside, like a big hamster wheel or something like that. And he could just kind of run, 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 run and get his energy out. And you know, the more that we were searching online, the more we came to the realization that that's not kind of what is going to work. So I just said to Katie, you know what we need to do? Give the boy a shovel, put him in the chips area of our lawn, and let him dig away. <laughs> and you know what? For this little nine-year-old guy, it was like four days straight of digging and joy. We're wired for this. If I wasn't wired for work, I wouldn't dig, but I want to dig. I want to move earth. I want to create. But when I become homo economicus, I rob work of its dignity. You know, there's a difference between a job and work. A job is a way that I make money so that I can do the things that I really want to do in life. Work is how I fulfill my responsibilities that life has placed before me to the glory of God. Martin Luther King Jr. advised that work should have length. It should be something that you can do over a lifetime. It should have breadth. It should touch 
many other people in this world. It should have height. It should put you in service to some ideal and satisfy the soul's yearning for righteousness. I like how Frederick Buckner described work. It's the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. You know, when people used to talk about work, they would describe work as a vocation. And now, for some reason, we've turned it into a checklist. It's a career, and I climbed the ranks of my career, and the goal is for me to achieve. Work is vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. So we all have a call in this life, and we're called to pursue that, to elevate people and glorify God with our life. I love what this one author says. She says that a person who has found a vocation doesn't feel she has a choice. It would be a violation of her own nature. I texted Katie after reading that. I sent her the text. I said, I think we found ourselves in a vocation. I'm a pastor. You're a teacher. What would you do in this world to bring about good, even if you didn't get paid for it? Solomon moves into another deep water area, sacred relationships. Remember, this transformational choice that you make, it may not necessarily change anything in your world. It may not change who you're married to. It may not change the relationships in your life, but it changes you. And perhaps the most significant place where we can live this out is with the people that God has placed in our lives. Now, you remember last week that in Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon described this lonely man. He was this homo economicus in pursuit of wealth and career and opportunity. And he was lonely because he had no one. Well, this is the wisdom that he prescribes right after telling that story. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If I'm summarizing all of this, this is saying that relationships really, really matter. You need them. In fact, we have so much evidence that verifies the biblical wisdom. You know, there's a study that began in 1938 from Harvard. And perhaps you've read about this study. It's called the, the longest study that's ever been conducted on happiness. So here's what they did. They traced a couple of men from Harvard. They followed them all the way through their life until death. Along the way, they realized we need to broaden the research pool. So they added some disadvantaged youth into the study. And this study is still going on today. And as they were journeying with these people, Every year, they would be asked about their lifestyle, their habits, relationships, work, and happiness. And they identified seven factors that matter a great 
deal for late life wellness. Here's number one, don't smoke. Number two, if you have a bad relationship with alcohol, if it's causing you to do things you're not proud of, or you're overly dependent, stop. Don't drink another drop. Number three, maintain a healthy body weight. Number four, exercise regularly. Here's the single best, arguably, the single best form of exercise. You ready for this one? Walk every day. Okay, I can do that. Five, confront your problems directly. Don't hide from them. Don't run away from them. Six, be a lifelong learner. Read a lot. But do you want to know what overshadowed all of it? Like, if you get this thing right, it's even better than not smoking, even better than eating greens every day, even better than exercising rigorously. Get this one. Stable, long-term relationships. Harvard psychiatry professor George Valent, who wrote three books on this study, says these words. There are two pillars of happiness. One is love. The other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. I'm sitting here reading this and I'm like, Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. This is all over the place in scriptures. If you want to lead a productive second half of life, it's really about just investing in what is right in front of you. So let's ask a question. How do you create real relationships with people? How do you go somewhere with them? I'm telling you, I could spend an entire sermon, perhaps a series on this. But I think that Solomon gives us a clue in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He says, two are better than one as they toil. In other words, real relationship is built upon common purpose and not upon common interest. You know, today, we're kind of told that the only way for me to kind of have a magnetic attraction to a person is we both like fishing. And we get on a boat and we pull in a lot of fish. But here's the problem. That is thin relationship versus thick relationship. Thin relationship means that the relationship ends when the common interest ends. Thick relationship remains because you went somewhere together. You know, talk to someone who served in combat in the military and ask if they stay in touch with the men, women that they served alongside of. They do. Why? They went somewhere together. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Sacred relationships, but let's get down to the heart of sacred relationships. Perhaps the most significant relationship, sacred marriage. Now Solomon just gives us one verse. It's very short, 
yet it is very profound on marriage. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 9. He says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So let's break down his advice. If you're married, stay married. Be happy. Enjoy your marriage. Work towards that. Choose to enjoy it. I know like when I talk about marriage in any setting that our minds start racing in a million different directions. The first thought is, well, that's really easier said than done, Rob. That's hard. Let me just say this. I have met few individuals who have said to me that marriage was easy for them. Very few. They are like a minority of a minority of people. I don't think that marriage is easy. It's the best part of my life, but it's not easy. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches when it talks about how difficult marriage is. Think about Matthew 19. Jesus is giving the ideal around marriage, and he's saying in this ideal, it is good for a man and a woman that they should not divorce. Okay? Now stop for a second. When Scripture expresses an ideal, it is saying to you and me, not that if you don't find yourself in this ideal, you're rubbish for the rest of your life. It's saying to us, that when this ideal is achieved, it results in much, much blessing for your life. Now, Jesus' disciples, when they hear him talk about this, are incredulous. They say to Jesus in Matthew uh, 19, they say, it's better than that a man should not marry if that's the ideal. They're like, hearing him talk about this, and they're saying, that sounds really, really difficult. Let me ask you a question. Why is it so difficult? Well, it's not easy for two souls to fuse into one soul. That's a very painful, difficult process. Anyone who's been married for any time knows that because it involves fighting and forgiveness and really, really hard things. Let's talk a little bit about this process. What makes it so difficult? Well, first, one writer notes, we're all crazy in some ways. Okay? So the crucial question at the depth of any relationship is not, is he crazy? It is, what are the ways you are crazy? What parts of your life have been blocked by fear? How exactly do you self-destruct? In what ways have you not been loved? You bring all of that craziness into your relationship. Another way is that we discover that marriage in some ways is like war. Psychologists joke that a marriage is a battleground in which two families send their best warriors to determine which family culture will direct the couple's life. Thinking about my own marriage, <laughs> I think Katie has proven to be the better warrior in that exchange. It's been said 
in marriage that there are two classic crisis moments that marriages go through. The first is just after the children are born. The the second is in the doldrums of middle age. The first is dangerous because the couple shifts the focus off of one another and they place the focus on the kids. The second is, well, let's just say more insidious. The couple starts taking one another for granted. Hmm. Let's talk about something that's really real. Courtesy and communication. Now, I know. Manners are so passe. They don't matter anymore. I speak freely. I share my mind. Good for you. Be happy being alone. (laughs) Manners protect connection. They protect connection. One psychologist, John Gottman, suggests that a well-mannered conversation is shaped by bids and volleys. So you can imagine a married couple. Uh, One is sitting at the table. They are totally engrossed in their cell phone, catching up on all the sports statistics because that's just so meaningful and it'll bring you so much happiness in life. And then the other is standing at the window and they observe a blue jay outside, and so they make a bid call. Honey, look out the window. There's a blue jay. Isn't it beautiful? Well, there's a couple of ways you can respond. One way is you could say, wow, that is beautiful. Thank you for pointing that out. That is a toward bid. Another way that you could respond is, oh, come on. Are you really going to disrupt what I'm doing right now for a blue jay? I see blue jays all the time. That is an against bid. Or you could just ignore them. You could pretend like they don't exist. That is a turning away bid. Now, Gottman says that for communication to be protected in a relationship, that there should be five positive bids for every one negative bid in the relationship. That's what keeps the conversation flowing. In fact, for marriages to stay strong, you just simply need to overwhelm the marriage with positive. The biblical truth about marriage is that it asks everything from you. You know, we kind of think of it in terms of like the big things, like I'm not going to have an affair, I'm not going to, you know, just abandon my family, I'm going to be there in those ways, but it asks more of you than that. It asks the daily moments of you. It asks you to stop being a selfish person and to not just think about yourself and to look beyond yourself and sometimes to be courteous because, you know what, they deserve for you to be courteous in the relationship. It's either I give myself fully to the relationship or The relationship dies on the vine, and the emotional damage that occurs when it dies on the vine is so significant. There was a study where people were giving testimonies of how painful it felt. Maybe they're in a loveless marriage, or maybe they've been divorced, and they say things like, 
I think I cried for a year. The pain is so overwhelming. This one just broke my heart. This one said, my personality has been rejected. It changed me permanently. I spent several years with no personality at all. You hear things like that, and then you start thinking, well, maybe Jesus' disciples were right. That's terrible. But no, marriage is like everything else. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I have to tell you, I've been a pastor for well over 15 years, and I've met many couples who have achieved fusion. And boy, you've got to go talk to those couples. Fusion is so hard, but it is so worth it. And most important of all, we have Scripture. And what does God tell us about marriage? He tells us that it is a sacred gift does God ever give a gift that is a bad gift? No, never. Listen, developing savor in life actually involves growing in one character quality, most of all. The character quality is humility. You see, when you're young, you think mostly about yourself. As you grow older, a transition starts to occur. You start looking beyond yourself. You start seeing people and really seeing people. One of my favorite definitions of uh, humility is the art of self-forgetfulness. I love that. Now, C.S. Lewis notes, like, it's hard because we just tend to think about the self all the time. If I'm not thinking about, you know, that I'm cold right now and I'm miserable because I'm cold or I'm hungry and must go get food or I'm uncomfortable, then we're thinking about the next thing that I want to say that would be really good in the conversation or how angry I am that that person did that thing against me. Do you know, like, in the maturity process, the age level that tends to think exclusively about itself is a baby. That's all babies can do. <laughs> must go to bathroom, must eat, must cry, must need attention. You know, it's just how babies think. Mature people, on the other hand, they cross a line. They see there's a better way. It's not that they don't think about themselves at all. You know, they know they matter. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. I don't need to prove my existence. I've got that existential crisis solved. So now they can divert all of that energy over into something that matters far much more, giving themselves fully into life. Let me leave you with uh, Solomon's last words on the thought. He says, God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Let me close this with a prayer. I 
I am, oh God, a jumbled mass of motives. One moment I am adoring you, and the next I am shaking my fist at you. I vacillate between mounting hope and deepening despair. I am full of faith and full of doubt. I want the best for others and am jealous when they get it. Even so, God, I will not run from your presence, nor will I pretend to be what I am not. Thank you for accepting me with all my contradictions. Amen.